The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Every time we have this show, I feel like we're talking about security clearance topics in the news, and that's certainly the case now as we are unpacking some legislation that was currently announced out of the Senate related to reforming the security clearance process. No surprise there. It's been a topic that's been talked about, and we've kind of known that the Senate was looking into this since the release of classified documents, the sloppy security practices perhaps that led to classified documents being found at Mar-a-Lago home of vice president, then Joe Biden, I think even Mike Pence, at at some point, it was actually cool to start talking about how that you had classified documents at your home. So in that vein, I wanted to ask one of my favorite experts on the security clearance process on personnel vetting specifically, and who has really given some great insights into the number of security clearance holders in the past, which is again, a topic that I've seen in the news. And that's Charles Phelan. He is the former acting director of the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, now with C.S. Phelan Associates. You will see him all around the security clearance community, providing his insights into everything from insider threat to, again, personnel vetting reform, which is the topic I asked him to address today. So thank you so much, Charlie, for being on the show and for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Very happy to be here today. We're kind of talking about the Senate and the legislation that was proposed. The messaging from the Senate over the past month, ever since the Jake Teixeira case was released, has really centered around how many people have a security clearance, the fact that a young person had a security clearance, I heard, which I definitely was kind of surprised that that was the line of criticism. But it's not a new line of attack. You came to mind right away because I know you've testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee on this very fact about the personnel vetting process and the number of security clearances. So why do you think that the number of security clearances is one of those things that the Senate really hits on when they're looking at security clearance reform, which is an ongoing topic for them? Yeah, uh, good question. And my instant reaction to this is this is another case of round up the usual suspects, that this is an, an easy target. And just go go back to what we, we always go back and ask is, so how many people have clearances? How many people can get access to it? And the other part of it, I think legislation is not only looking at the clearances, but at the vetting process itself and looking for flaws in that. But getting to sort of to the current events, the number of cleared people is an interesting number. We can talk a little bit more about that later. But this is, in fact, the actions of one person. As to the process... Before uh, questioning the process as a whole, which will somebody will probably want to do, first they got to do all the forensics to see how this all happened. And uh, a, a big move in the clearance processing in the last few years has been the move to continuous vetting. So once a person has been deemed as eligible for access to classified information, to have a near real-time capability of understanding whether that individual has uh, has changed in their uh, behaviors or whatever. So one can make real-time reporting and then make a more near real-time determination about continued eligibility. 
This does place an obligation, not an option, an obligation on officials, on managers to report aberrant behavior, things that are strange, things that are odd. Uh, the media has reported on at least three occasions, Mr. Teixeira was seen to be looking at information that he really should not have been, uh, not have been looking at. And some officials knew about this, but my question would be, and I have no inside information on this, is was this reported to an insider threat hub of any sort for them to take actions? This apparently occurred, again, based on media reports, at least three times over the previous six months before his arrest. Uh, so I would argue maybe don't beat up on the process so much. There was a clear path to report this information. If that was not taken, that's the problem. There's, there's a process that will deal with it, but, they have to, but the process has to know that there's something to, to deal with. So again, I think it's uh, less about the total number and more about uh, is, is the, are people following a process that's been put in place to find this stuff. I agree with that line of thought. I'm always coming at it from the side of the hiring and recruiting market where we just find that that's the opposite case where we have a finite cleared talent pool and a number of folks in the population. Exactly like you said, when you have an issue with, with one person to kind of attack the number of security clearance holders does seem to miss the mark a little bit. There's a lot more to the Sensible Classification Act and the Classification Reform Act than we'll be able to unpack here. Not all of it is bad. I think I'm taking the critics angle, but it does address overclassification, declassification reform, and that's not my bread and butter issue. So I don't know when those topics have been reformed, but kind of the drum I've been beating is saying, hey, let's look at policies through the ISU or through other things. Why do we always have to hit vetting over the head when when an incident happens? But I am calling out Section 9 of that Sensible Classification Act because it requires agencies to report on the number of secret and top secret security clearances. And it directly ties into, again, the messaging line that's been coming out of Congress. One senator has called the number of people with security clearances crazy. There's just been a lot of criticism of the number. And the legislation asks agencies to reduce the number of clearances where possible. I push back. What if they need to increase the number of clearances or billets? Why isn't that in the legislation? So can you kind of talk to why reducing the number is the focus and why the legislation would point to that? Looking at the number of people cleared is something, quote, easy to focus on. But the real question is what impact would reducing the numbers actually have? The the starting point here is I'm pretty sure that the cleared community, whether it's the intelligence community or the Department of Defense or whatever, has those numbers. And I believe, unless things have changed considerably in the last couple of years, they report these numbers and they're available to, to, to Congress as to what the, the numbers of folks in these categories are. The I don't believe that the reduction of people in the classified world is going to have any particularly great impact on this, uh, whether there are 4 million people cleared, which is a round number that is used today and thrown out on the table, or 3 million people cleared, or 2.5 million people cleared. That's an awful lot of people that we have made trust determinations on. In all cases, in, in the old days or today, the question of who uh, gets a clearance is based on a need to either have information or be in proximity of things that are sensitive. And that means there needs to be trust uh, in the role that they are performing. Um, some people, uh, you know, take, think of your average intel analyst are up to their ears in, uh, uh, in classified information. And in fact, the amount of information that they can see now is, is just huge because of as we moved into the computer age, rather than every document being uh, stuck in a safe somewhere, it gets pushed out to people that need to use it along that, uh, that, that supply chain. Some people will only occasionally come across this sort of stuff. In particular, that would be folks that are in oversight processes, whether it is a, a, or a industrial general counsel or the CEO of a company or, or somebody. 
or others that are just in leadership roles but don't have to see every day every piece of information. Some of it is just being in proximity to the classified information. For example, IT technicians like Mr. Teixeira have this trust determination was made on them because they are going to be in and around and assembling systems that are handling this highly sensitive information. My question would be, do we want to have more trust or less trust in these people or more trusted people and as they work around this sort of thing? I would ask the question, do, so for example, if, I'm, if somebody's putting together the, the highly classified IT system, do you want to know whether you can trust them to do it right and whether they're going to compromise this thing? Do you care how much you trust the individual who is assembling the navigation system on the new B-21 bomber? I think the answer to those two questions is absolutely yes. And then one thing that is not addressed in these is the suitability and public trust side of things, where actually DCSA is doing the investigations to make sure that to inform agencies about the uh, potential for suitability issues or public trust issues for people that are going into sensitive positions, not access to classified information, but access to some fairly sensitive information. As we move along in this integration of classified world and the trusted uh, population that is not classified through the um, PAC PMO, they're moving more of these processes together to work more closely in parallel. And that line is going to get more and more blurred. I think this is actually a good thing because trust is trust. And uh, in the end, can I trust you is the most important question. The, uh, uh, so the real question to be answered in all this, I'm getting sort of off the topic here, but the real question to be answered in all this is not so much how many cleared people do you have, but how well and how do you control the information designation, that would be the classification determination, whether something is or is not something to be protected. And perhaps more importantly, how do you control the flow, which has has just, it has been a flood ever since uh, IT systems were set up. And the amount of information that moves through these systems to various points on the compass just gets greater and greater um, every day. And it, in my experience is it's not entirely clear to the people who are putting information into these systems that they even know where it's going to. So that is, I think, the flow of the information, how that gets controlled is, is perhaps more relevant in this case than it is whether there's three, four, or two million people cleared in the government. I love that you pointed out that the suitability and public trust aspect, because that's something we've been kind of prepping for in terms of, of messaging and thinking there needs to be more information going out to that workforce about what that scenario looks like, but rolling out Trust Workforce 2.0 to the entire federal government population will be enrolling a lot more people into a vetting scenario. To your point, I think is a good thing. Again, do you want people that you can trust working in the government? But I think you could see more of these issues spiraling out, you know, if you find negative news, because there are obviously folks that have PIV card credentials and other things that happen that are going to get flagged under a CV program for issues. And that's a good thing. That doesn't mean our workforce is bad. It means the system is addressing issues sooner and we're able to vet people in a in a better way and provide help to the workforce, I think, in good ways. But I think what you could see is, again, just more criticism of the government and federal population, which is, again, the opposite of what we need right now. I think we need more people to pursue careers in national security, more people who want to work for the government. And when you kind of attack the workforce around these issues, I think it's going to have a negative impact. I would I would agree with that, Lindy. It, uh, um, and you think about where this is going to, the, the notion of a continuous vetting program is to see problems, challenges, trust challenges occurring much earlier in the process than you would in the past. 
And so what that enables, and, and my experience is that people don't wake up one morning with a, being perfectly fine the last 10 years and say, I'm going to betray my country this morning. Things degenerate over time. The sooner that an organization, an element can see that somebody is going off those tracks, the sooner they can address that issue and make one of two decisions. One is help get them back on the track. And my experience has been a lot of people are able to get back on the track because the mistakes they are making have been, I want to say innocent, but uh, uh, have not been intentional. And uh, get them back on the track and get them get them uh, back into a full trust capacity. Or make that determination that they've gone too far and we can't trust them and don't want to wait until something really bad has happened. Absolutely. And then the SF-86 always comes up, the, again, because it's a key aspect of the vetting process. I find it's interesting that a ton of people are criticizing, saying, hey, we need to update the SF-86. And I'm like, come on, don't you read clearancejobs.com? So they already have the PBQ. They've already released proposed changes. There was an open comment period for those changes. So I've not seen the final draft of the PBQ. I've seen the draft of the PBQ. Do you think there's going to be more pushback now to change the form? Is that something the government's going to look at in the wake of all of this? Or do you even think that that's a necessary step? This particular event or events like it doesn't lend itself to saying, hey, you need to change the form. I mean, there is no specific question in the form that says, hey, are you playing games out there with your friends and giving them classified information? But it does go to the question of trust. I don't see this to share case leading to something changing on the form itself. But there are and legitimately have been questions raised in the past about do you need to bring the form and the form of the questions and the way they are addressed somewhere into the early 21st century as opposed to the late 1950s when these things were first put out. And uh, two areas that keep popping up, one is a current event area, the other is a long-running one. We'll take that one first. And that is the whole issue of mental health, the original question 21. And uh, I, I'm pleased to see that that question has been revised, that the focus is on, on clarity, on simplicity of it, as opposed to the old question 21, which can take you off into, into literally a dark hole sometimes. I would say there's one interesting aspect of this thing, which will have to happen regardless of what they do with the new form. But folks have just gone to a, a lot of work to refigure the eQuip into eApp, which is online. And those of you who haven't used eApp, I have. I find it to be a full century better than, than eQuip and uh, much easier to use. And I'm, I'm thrilled with the way that turned out. With a new PVQ, they're going to have to do some recoding. So it'll be interesting to see how they can get it recoded. And more importantly, how they can link up the various parts of eApp e that people have already filled out back into a new version of a PVQ. But that's for the text to figure out. Yeah, the the, the century remark is absolutely true when, when it comes to eQuip to eApp. When it comes to PVQ, I feel like it's great that you you know, kind of correlate those because a lot of the changes are just in how the information is set up and how the forms are split out. So that will be like a coding issue for how those are set up. And it does ask more questions about, I know, handling protected information um, and kind of tries to unpack that question a little bit about trustworthiness around data protection, which again, the issue with it to share cases, like you said, he had a background documented at least based on the news reports of already mishandling classified information. So that should have been the red flag issue prior to any leaks on Discord. But I will tie that into my next question was about social media. So the big hit I'm seeing beyond, hey, there's too many people with security clearances around the vetting process is, hey, why aren't we using social media as part of that process? My pushback is even if you're looking at social media, how are you going to find private information through password protected servers on a place like Discord? A lot of things can happen on the deep dark web that are not going to come up through a background investigator's time. But I'd be curious 
based on your betting expertise, obviously working in the Intel space this long, we know that social media can be a factor in the security clearance process. Cyber vetting is baked into policy. We can use it. But do you agree with criticism that we need to be using more social media, that we need to be asking people for usernames and handles and passwords, which I've also seen? Talk about the social media piece of this a little bit. Yes, I think there's broader possibilities that can be explored and used uh, with social media. But to your point, uh, Lindy, there are differing thoughts on the application. My view on this, based on seeing a lot of this stuff in the last few years, the best use of it is if I am following leads from, say, a CV lead or something, so Teixeira is doing stuff online, somebody says that to us, then going through uh, publicly available sources can be very useful for clarification, for validation, maybe to refute certain things in, in a specific, let's follow the lead and uh, follow the message here. What I found it is not so effective as a screening tool. In the, uh, t- the trials that were run uh, in some of my, a couple of my earlier lives, we went across the publicly available information We would uh, for a number of applications, or a number of applicants, and scraped everything that could be scraped on these individuals. It's frankly, due to the volume of information that was coming back, Worse, the ambiguity, is it really John Smith or some other John Smith? Questions about the validity. There was very little that came out that said, here's something that is useful to follow. And maybe as we get into, this is the big ticket thing these days, get into more AI applications, maybe there's some way of using AI to look at these sort of take from some of these screening tools and say, can they do a better job and a quicker job? And uh, of disambiguating all this stuff and, and perhaps validating or not uh, refuting it to, to then hand it to a human to help make that adjudicative decision over a particular fact or something. I think that's probably worth exploring at this point. But to your second question, the question of the boundary. We've all agreed collectively that open source information, publicly available information is fair game. Put it out there on public sourcing and it's it's out there. I think I have a different opinion on on whether we can routinely demand access to people's private accounts, whether it's their personal uh, uh, Facebook account or, or their personal emails or into their gaming accounts, whatever, and ask them to, to tell us about uh, the, or give us access to these sort of things. With a search warrant, uh, particularly with some probable cause, I think that makes perfect sense. But as a routine thing, I think I would rephrase the question, how do you feel about DCSA, using an example, being able to listen to all of your phone calls or put a microphone in your family room and listen to all those conversations that are taking place. I just don't think that's appropriate in this country today. So in my view, the boundary is open source versus getting routine access and past people's passwords without some kind of due cause. No, I absolutely concur. And again, I feel like what these cases generally show is there usually is some external information outside of the vetting process that showed the red flag issues, but they just kind of We go to the beginning of the story rather than hitting where the issue should have been caught because it's a lot harder to address the insider threat issue, the leadership, you know, the command culture, company culture, or just community around how information is protected. But vetting, we know the process. It's governed in a lot of policy. So we just tend to hit that a little bit more. But I would like to see a little bit more look into how these things actually happen and the buildup and maybe some, some better case studies around why are we kind of allowing somebody to mishandle classified information and still retain that access. I'm not sure. Is there anything else that I didn't address or we didn't unpack here that you wanted to make sure we discussed? Well, a couple things. One of the other parts of the messages you talked about uh, or the, the legislation that was proposed has to do with uh, classification and declassification uh, handling. 
short answer on that, it's hard. There's a lot of information out there that is sensitive and needs protection. In fact, the creation of controlled, unclassified information is a recognition that, that it doesn't just stop at the classified, unclassified realm. There is this gray area of needs to be protected government information. Uh, and frankly, the same goes for a lot of company proprietary information. And all of this stuff fits into some tactical or strategic framework. All of it is something that is designed or defines as gives us, whoever us is, the government, the company, whatever, an edge over competition. The other side of that coin is that competitors, whether they are nations or other companies, will take everything they get their hands on. And the volume of things that have to be put into these categories is and will continue to get larger and larger. The key to this whole thing, again, is control. Control of the information. We're talking about 4 million people that are cleared and trusted in this country right now. They don't need to see everything. How do we as a government, how do we as whatever, control the pushing out of that information and at the same time make sure it doesn't go too far here? And we're still struggling with sort of post 9-11, actually post global war one, whatever it was back in the 1991, where we, we needed to push out information to war fighters and people who needed it. But now it's being pushed out without a whole lot of regard as to where it's going. And we need a more sensible distribution system, I think, rather than worrying about whether it needs to be classified or not. It still needs to be a process for classification, but it is really how do we control the, the movement of it? I know it is a part of the, the current Senate reform and the proposals is looking into those classification processes. So I hope that gets some of the questions and some of the scrutiny. You're listening to Security Clearance Insecurity. I'm your co-host, Sean Bigley, and I'm here with Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about domestic violence. And Lindy, this is a hot topic, not just in the cleared world, but generally, I think based on some pretty startling statistics that I found, 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States, adding up to 10 million people a year. Intimate partner violence is the single biggest cause of injury to women in the United States. States. So pretty astounding, I think, certainly was to me. And I've spent a decade in law practice representing security clearance holders, as I'm sure most of our listeners know. Uh, But I know you have a a pastime of uh, perusing the Doha security clearance cases. And so you probably have a, I would say, really a better sense than I do even of how many cases are out there involving folks who have security clearances denied or revoked for domestic violence related issues. What's your sense on that? Yeah, I mean, it is disconcerting because I think when you look at a lot of the criminal conduct cases, a lot of those are domestic violence cases. You've written about this on clearance jobs and talked about it as a, you know, the role of a police officer. You are going to have police involvement in a domestic violence issue. You're going to have something that's going to be certainly a reportable issue. And that is another issue that comes up. Folks thinking, hey, it was a domestic issue. I Maybe the police came, but there weren't charges or they don't think they have to report it. But the reality is if you have police at your house, I mean, I would love your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, so as it pertains to the self-reporting issue, I mean, you know, the the reporting guidelines under CAD 3 and generally applicable at most agencies, there are a handful of agencies that kind of take it a step further and have added reporting requirements beyond that. What I always have traditionally advised our clients is that, you know, the threshold for self-reporting when the cops show up at your home is if if there's an arrest. So we do see situations certainly where, you know, the police show up, it's kind of a keep the peace thing and everybody goes their separate ways and it's all kumbaya. That's increasingly rare though, I think these days with the domestic violence situations, because most states have mandatory arrest laws where if, you know, the cops come out for domestic violence calls, somebody's going to jail. What is kind of the general 
perspective, I guess, if you will, of the administrative judges and the adjudicators? Is it mitigatable? Well, everything is mitigatable. I think this is certainly an issue where your reliability, trustworthiness, and judgment are at question if you fly off the handle and do something that hurts your spouse. The whole person concept applies to everything. So if this truly was a one-time rare incident, I mean, you're going to get all my triggers, Sean, because I'm a little bit, I come at this from a bit of a different angle. And a lot of times in a domestic violence issue, by the time it bubbles up, there was a lot happening under the surface. It's usually an issue where by the time somebody finds out about it, there's a bigger pattern here. I think it's worth taking a harder line stance on it. I think the government in general writ large looks at it under the totality of circumstances. And in my experience, when you see those cases, there are usually other red flag issues out there. You don't have to stand on the domestic violence issue alone. A lot of times there's alcohol consumption issues, as you mentioned, substance abuses, some substance some kind of a criminal conduct charge under the weight of all of those things, it is hard to overcome. If it truly is a matter of, I feel like I have seen incidents where maybe somebody has something in their background. So they're not a current clearance holder, but they're applying for a clearance. And in the past, they had something in their record. Those are a lot easier to mitigate passage of time versus I'm a current clearance holder and I'm facing a domestic violence issue that's causing a clearance denial or revocation. I would agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as you say, everything in theory is mitigatable. Passage of time is, is certainly a big mitigating factor. And I think it's important for people to understand when we talk about mitigation, there are some specific things that the government tends to look for in these cases. So, you know, if you've done something in the past, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's some other type of criminal charge, and, you know, you've made amends for that or, or taken ownership of it and, and made some changes to prevent repeat, they're not necessarily going to fry you over that. I mean, it's it's something that over time, if you can show a maturation, an evolution of how you're handling situations, it is potentially mitigatable. But at the end of the day, I think the most important thing that I always have encouraged people to understand is that it's not necessarily the charge itself that's the issue, it's the underlying conduct. And so people sometimes come to me or they would come to me when I was in private practice and they would say, well, you know, can you work with my criminal defense attorney to help him understand how we plea bargain this down to some lesser charge so that it's not going to impact my clearance? And what I would always say was, you know, that's great if you can do that, but at the end of the day, it's not really going to make a huge difference on the clearance side because they're still looking at what was the underlying conduct. That's a takeaway for me that I have had personal experience with folks saying attorneys are coming to victims of domestic violence and saying, don't report this or don't go through with charges or don't go through with an order of protection because you'll be affecting your significant other security clearance eligibility. And I'm not an attorney, so I can say this, but I feel like if that's the advice you're getting, nobody who's a victim should be threatened with not reporting something because it's going to affect somebody's security clearance eligibility. And I have gotten those emails, heard those stories and have personal experience around that. And there's always a bigger picture. You know, as an attorney, there's a lot of inputs. If they're looking at someone's ability to stay employed, potentially to pay child support, I get that there's other factors in there, but... I would caution as a victim, just know you are not responsible for your significant other's clearance eligibility and you should not feel a need to withdraw or withhold being proactive in that because that will eventually catch up with that person at some point down the road. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? 
Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.